a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could be part of our growing uh, audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, our audience is uh, spreading out across the world. Turns out uh, wrong think is kind of a necessity no matter where you live these days. And our show is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com. Pleased to welcome the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah to our, our list of sponsors, as well as GovernYourIncome.com and SolarPatriots.com. Now, I've got a nice link on my uh, webpage where you can actually go and visit these sponsors and learn a little bit more about them. In the show notes, there's a link that will take you to each one of them. We'll be telling you more about them throughout the course of the show, but thank you again for being part of our audience. I get the sense that a lot of people find themselves standing at a crossroads, and I don't mean standing there wringing their hands going, things are hard and life is difficult and scary, and all of those things may be true. You know, it's, it's been pretty tough here the last 20 months or so. What was it I saw today? Uh, I think it was uh, the musician Zuby had tweeted something about, you know, the, the hardest part about 15 days to flatten the curve is the first 600 days. I think, yeah, we're we're getting a pretty good education on that right now. But as difficult as the last 20 months have been, I want to encourage you, and, and I especially want to give encouragement to those who feel a calling of sorts to stand up and be counted. Now, these days, that can come with a pretty significant price because... I mean, let's let's face it. There are so many mandates upon mandates and punishments and ostracization that's being placed on people for, for non-compliance with what everybody knows is the right thing to do, meaning everybody in power wants you to do. You could pay a pretty high price. And still, people feel the need to do it. Those are the folks I'm speaking to. I don't know a nice way to say this. In fact, you know, the, the program director <clears throat> at the radio station, cover your ears because... Um, the message I have is really not for the masses. It's for people who are, are thinking beyond groupthink and, and trying to come to their own conclusions. What can I do? What should I do? So that's who I'm speaking to. I'm talking to the lions more so than the sheep. And I'm sorry if that sounds dismissive. Well, everybody else who agrees, who disagrees is uh, just a bunch of sheep. I don't, uh, I don't devalue those who, who aren't awake, because frankly, we've all been there ourselves, right? I mean, we can relate that not everybody has, uh, has the same degree of understanding of what's going on or the same awareness. Now, it just so happens, uh, I've been speaking about, uh, you know, the encroachment of tyranny and the need to defend liberty for quite a while, over a quarter century at this point. My understanding has evolved over the course of that time, so I still, I still don't consider myself to be the fount of knowledge, and, you know, this is, this is where you can get all the answers to all of life's problems. But I, I, I say this just to spell out, I have invested significant amount of my time and energy and understanding to learning the principles and practices of liberty, understanding the things that diminish 
or otherwise undermine those principles and then doing my part to be a voice that speaks up to to make popular those things that are sound as well as to point out those things that are unsound that we would be better off not embracing. Now, what you do with this information, that's up to you. I'm not going to insist that you have to agree with me or you're a bad person. But I know there are people who are trying to slog their way out of the swamp of misinformation. I'm still doing it myself. And I may be a few steps further ahead than some people, but thank heavens there are people who are steps ahead of me, many steps ahead, who thoughtfully left markers along the way. So that's what I'm trying to do. Help point out those markers for the people who are behind me. You, shall, you hopefully should point them out to the people who are behind you in that journey. But above all, be patient with the people who are still trying to find their way towards the truth. If you haven't read Plato's Allegory of the Cave, it would be worth your time to Google it, sit down, read it, and then uh, just contemplate. Once you have freed yourself from the, the mind chains that are placed on you over the course of a lifetime, sometimes through your education, sometimes just through societal attitudes or cultural trends or, or uh, fads that, that have caught on, you make, it, make your way out of the cave into the sunlight, you start to realize, I have a duty. I have to help point the way for other people, not, not necessarily drag them kicking and screaming. That's, that's not a great way to accomplish things by force, but to persuade people there's a better way. There's a broader way to view what's going on. So with that in mind, with that, with that little pretext, let's, let's dive into uh, hopefully some positive news for you today. I think that this is one of the best things I've read in a while. Some very positive aspects and opportunities about uh, what we have been through in the last 20 months or so. Jeffrey Tucker is an exceptionally gifted writer for the Brownstone Institute. And his article, The War We've Lived and the Birth of the New, is something that I strongly recommend you take a look at and maybe even share with the people around you who you know are looking for truth, looking for light. This is how I actually go about uh, vetting a lot of the, the information that, uh, that I'm uh, going through on a daily basis. I mean, I read, I don't know how many articles on any given day looking for good information to share with you. And I'm not looking for people who pass the litmus test. Well, are they conservative enough that I can, you know, give them the old Brian stamp of approval here? No. The thing I look for more than anything is I look for light in whatever the message is that that is being shared. And I, I don't know how to describe it. I know that sounds very metaphysical. Yes, I, I break out the crystals and, you know, I, I look to see which ones vibrate more furiously and, you know, indicate that there's greater light here. I'm not sure if I can even describe the process, but I recognize, and I think you probably do too, when, when there is light to a person's message as opposed to darkness or just anger, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. I'm looking for that light. And there's a lot of it in Jeff in Jeffrey Tucker's uh, article here. He talks about being in a department store. He says, I was in Marshall's yesterday, where dystopian vertical boards keep people in checkout lines separated like cattle at a feeding trough. Customers approach the checkout to encounter a masked person behind plexiglass, pay with touchless tech, and then scamper away with hope that we avoided a pathogenic enemy we cannot see. We can't see it, 
he says, but we sure did institutionalize ways to avoid it, all codified by the science and imposed by force and fear. Like the social distancing stickers on the floor, all of this apparatus are part of the surviving relics of a world gone mad. No trying on clothing, no sampling perfume. A full-time employee stood at the entrance to enforce mask wearing. Keep that mask over your nose. It was all part of virus control, which became a mystical liturgy that governed life for 20-some months after darkness fell in the spring of 2020. Now, Tucker says these signs and symbols of mass panic are gradually going away, leaving in their wake sadness, regret, shattered dreams, psychological trauma, bad health, ruined businesses, broken friendships and families, and a loss of trust and confidence in myriad institutions that once took our respect for them for granted. I mean, that's pretty accurate, wouldn't you say? Listen to this next part, though. He says, the people who did this to the world are still clinging to the hope that they can make a dignified walk back from the disasters they created. In fact, Jeff Tucker says that seems to be the major point of the vaccine mandate domestically and for foreigners traveling in. It's the best hope, they believe, for providing them cover. They had to get everyone jabbed before we got our freedom back. We resisted their dictates out of ignorance, they said, so they had to impose them with ever more fines and threats. Thus, are we transitioning from a kabuki, the COVID kabuki dance to a system of overt segregation of the clean versus the unclean? a situation we've encountered before during the most morally egregious episodes in modern history. And while the clean are granted freedom, the unclean cannot travel, cannot participate in public life, and sometimes cannot shop or get medical care. Now, never mind that the data are not playing along. While the private benefit for the vulnerable from the vaccine exists, the public health benefit appears more dubious by the day especially given the manner in which public health authorities have obstinately denied what at least 106 studies have already affirmed. By the way, he has a link to that 106 studies that he's talking about. i got to pump the brakes here because we're up against our own break. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll continue this uh, essay from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. And I promise, I mean, he's, he's laying out the case here. There is some good news. There are some very positive developments. Yes, they're the product of pain, but hey, that's how exercise works too, right? No pain, no gain. Well, in this case, the, the pain that we've experienced has forced us to think in some different ways. You'd be surprised at the innovations people are reaching. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, I'm sharing an article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. The War We've Lived and the Birth of the New. This is one of the more positive essays that I've read in a while, and that's why I was eager to share this with you. I think we need some good news, and we need to understand that, you know, there's always going to be opposition. We're always going to face, you know, things that will push back against that which is good. I don't know why I had it in my head at one time that, you know, as you get older, life is supposed to get easier and more comfortable and happier and just better all the time, just like this never-ending upward arc to just pure ecstasy at some point. 
Well, it turns out that's not how life is at all. In fact, it gets more complicated. It gets uh, more difficult. And of all things, your body starts to, to rebel against you and slow down and break down in ways you probably hadn't anticipated. Nevertheless, there is so much good about us that it's sometimes easy to forget, to look around and acknowledge it, appreciate it, and, and express gratitude for it. But my point is you wouldn't appreciate it as much if it weren't for the opposition. The joy of a reunion with a loved one is, uh, is very, very intense, as is the sorrow at the loss of a loved one. There's a reason for that. There's, there's a universal reason why those opposites exist and how they help us to grow in our understanding. Sorry, metaphysics off. Okay, back to Jeff Tucker's article. He says, what we've been through, what we've all been through, is impossible to describe in a sentence because there are so many dimensions to it all. And he's talking about the last 20 months since he says it's affected and traumatized everything and everyone. In fact, he says, I once tried to imagine what the blowback would look like. Now, this was late April 2020, writing with no clue that the frenzy would continue for another year and a half. He says, I predicted an impending revolt against masks, against mainstream media, against politicians, against Zoom only life, against distancing, against academia, against experts in general and against public health authorities in particular. Now, Tucker says, I was correct, but far too early in my prediction, what began as a dreadful error in political and bureaucratic judgment became an entrenched policy, and then a generalized practice of disregarding basic human rights in every area of life. The schools remained shut for the year, while the enforcement of absurdity became a national way of life. The point of exhaustion with the entirety of the antivirus theater happened in waves across the country and has only reached the whole country after 20 months. Now, the result was not only carnage, but also learning and responding. And the passage of of time has highlighted that we're living amidst not only the death of institutions and expertise, but also witnessing the glorious birth of new institutions and voices. Jeffrey Tucker says this has been exciting to watch. COVID restriction and cancel culture coincided, taking out some of the most intelligent and prescient individuals in the public space. They had their social media accounts deleted, their jobs threatened, and sometimes taken away, their access to their audiences throttled. This is because legacy social media platforms signed up to become mouthpieces for the regime. And the result was an astonishing dreariness, not actual reporting at all. Anything that reinforced the lockdown mandate line was allowed in, and anything contradicting was blocked. And the scientific journals weren't much better. But thanks to the will to survive, the canceled found other outlets that are now thriving. The stodgy and stultifying information blockades provided an opportunity for other institutions to be born and blossom in record time. There are new video platforms and social media channels that are doing a booming business. For instance, he says, I found myself relying on Substack and other new venues for actual information at a time when the mainstream media has been marching in political lockstep with the lockdown regime. Substack, for example, was founded with a $2 million investment in 2017. Now it is on its Series B funding round with $84 million along with 213 employees. Now he says the business model of Substack sounds a bit like many others. It enabled publishing, 
Crucially, it allows its users to accept subscriptions, which it then mails to users, <clears throat> excuse me, post by post. It permits its authors to make some content free and some paid and allows them to set the price. In other words, the Substack platform enables authors to achieve pretty much what the New York Times does, but without all the third-party plugins and setup required to set up a paid blogging platform. But here's the real business advantage. Substack refused to censor responsible material. In fact, it made itself a home to those who were being censored by others. Users and authors both began to trust the platform after its owners were hounded by the mainstream press and refused to budge. They would be a platform for free speech, period. Now, this not only saved Alex Berenson from death by Twitter, but it's inspired countless new intellectuals and writers who've been victimized by COVID cancel culture. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have reached new highs and record adoption in these times, too, as the value of national currencies depreciates due to reckless monetary policies and lockdown-related breakages. Having never shut down or seen their operations throttled, they've taken on the role of a safe haven in dangerous times. Now, the Brownstone Institute, which Jeffrey Tucker is a part of, is a case of live or a case of new birth. He says the website went live only on August 1st of this year, but will soon have racked up 3 million page views along with a global network of contacts. The growth has been phenomenal to behold. And why? Well, he says, you know, think about that. This, they've only been around for a couple of months here, but we have yet to produce fancy videos or hire a marketing team and all the rest. We have all that is necessary for success in the post-lockdown world. Outstanding content that provides light rather than propaganda. In addition, he says there are already new universities being founded alongside new research institutes, activist organizations, television shows, and podcasts. We're looking at a probable political realignment. And inevitably, he says, philanthropy will need to catch up to the new. Support will likely leave institutions that failed us so miserably during the lockdowns and refused to step up to defend human rights. To mention one obvious example among so many, the well-funded ACLU has enjoyed a long history of taking unpopular positions in defense of human liberties until they decided to throw it all away in defense of a pandemic policy that had zero regard for rights and liberties. He's right. They strayed from their mission. People who supported the ACLU for years are going, whoa, what happened? They got woke. They became part of the woke and surrendered whatever moral high ground they once held. Tucker says there are thousands of other institutions and individuals that completely flopped when their voices were most needed. He says every crisis in the history of modernity has produced a cultural and social realignment. Old institutions on the wrong side sink into the mire of their own disrepute, while new ones rise up to take their place, standing courageously on principle and inspiring students, customers, benefactors, and the general public. This was true after the Civil War in American history, but also true all over the world following the 20th century's two world wars along with the Vietnam War. What failed is washed away, and what stood steadfast gains new prominence. Now, I'm going to pause here because we're coming up on the break, but 
as you look around you, can you see evidence of what Jeffrey Tucker is talking about here? Yes, we've seen some some really, uh, really ugly things take place and continue to be enforced and clung to desperately by those who push them. And that's bad. I think we can all agree on that. We've also seen a remarkable coalition of people who are not just, you know, freedom curious, but they're, they're damn serious about their freedom, and they're going to stand up and uh, come together, putting aside other differences to make a principled stand. I think of people like Eric Mutzos and the uh, Utah Revival Movement. That started as a pretty simple thing. Hey, let's have a protest, you know, at the city-county building in Salt Lake City. It's a movement. It's a legit movement. And it started because of the opposition, not just in spite of it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Going to finish up with Jeffrey Tucker's amazing essay, which I have linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Hey, before I do, though, I want to welcome a uh, an old friend and a new sponsor to the program. This would be Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. You can go to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Actually, let me, uh, sewingquiltingcenter.com. I don't want to give you the wrong web address. There is a link in the show notes that will take you right there. This is... An existing business that has been around for a long time. It's under new ownership. My friend Eric Alsop and his wife, Teresa, purchased this from Ken Harker. Uh, Ken started the business back in 1984, and uh, it's it's changed owners twice in that time. But this is a very longstanding business, and they do uh, brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidery and sewing machines, oh, long-arm quilting machines. And for those of you who aren't into quilting or who don't do sewing, this may seem like, okay, well, it's a, it's a hobby kind of thing. You have no idea. You have no clue how many people take very seriously the art of quilting. My mom is one of them. And just I, I look at the, the legacy that she is going to leave behind because of the work that she has done, the quilting that she has done for years and years. It's really remarkable. And it's with, with prices going up and people having to, to be more self-reliant, it's a great time to learn how to use a sewing machine, how to fix your own clothes, how to create your own clothing. Well, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah can do that for you. Again, there's a link, sewingquiltingcenter.com. It's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. If you get the chance, if you're passing by, stop in and tell them, hey, Thanks for being a sponsor of the Brian Hyde Show and and uh, let them know that their message reached your ears. So back to uh, back to Jeffrey Tucker's article, The War We Have Lived in the Birth of the New. Yes, we've all felt the pain. We've all felt the disappointment and discouragement of what has been forced upon us here in the last 20 months or so. And there's parts of it that are still just really, really ugly. I'm personally, I'm struggling so hard with the idea that we need to be vaccinating these kids ages 5 to 11. And again, it's it's not even so much that, that uh, I think vaccines are evil, so much as this push to mandate, mandate, everybody's got to do this. There can be no exceptions. There can be no conscience. You just have to obey. 
I don't know why, but that sets off alarms in the deepest part of my soul when I hear that these things have to be compulsory. You cannot be trusted to choose for yourself. I guess it's because deep in my soul I understand that the question that has dogged us throughout the existence of mankind, the entire history of mankind, if you will, could be summed up in the question, will man be free? And personally, I believe that is a battle that started long before we ever entered this world. I think it's part of an eternal battle between light and darkness. So let's look at the bright side of what Jeffrey Tucker has seen over the last 20 months. He talks about how what we have lived through has warlike features and will have culture-shifting effects. Many people were tested. Many people failed. The failures made a bad bet that playing it safe and echoing regime priorities was the prudent path. But now they sit on a digital archive of cowardice, censorship, bad science, and disregard for humane values. Tucker says more inspiring to watch has been the emergence of a new movement that transverses political and ideological lines and is defined by its implacable commitment to enlightenment values human freedom, and the determination to celebrate what's true against all odds, what used to be called normal as recently as 2019. He says this birth and growth of the new is a tribute to the reality that human beings will not be forced to live in cages and think only what our masters tell us to think. We are wired to be free, creative, and truth-telling, and cannot abide by systems that attempt to stamp out all of those instincts and instead treat us all like lab rats or code in their models. No, he says, never. The crazy rules and practices that governments and corporations adopted and imposed over the last 20 months will in time look ridiculous and embarrassing to nearly everyone. That we went along with such preposterous practices is a sad commentary on the human condition and its primitive ways. Apparently, we as a society are only a step away from the abyss into which a well-timed campaign of fear can push us. But he says, I'm not sure that any of us knew that until we lived it. We will emerge on the other side of this wiser, stronger, more determined, and motivated by the new realization that the civilization we take for granted is not a given but might instead be held by a thread that must be reinforced daily by knowledge, wisdom, and moral courage. We can never again allow a ruling class to exercise such brutality against the people. It has not ended well for the lockdowners and mandators. They are perhaps now beginning to realize they are not the authors of history. We are. Everyone is. Jeffrey Tucker says no one is born, appointed, or much less destined to dictate to everyone else. That powerful conviction forged modernity and what it means to be civilized. There will be no turning back the clock, not at this late date in the course of human progress. So what does that require of you and me? Well, believe it or not, it just requires the willingness to to be true. To know your conscience, to be in tune with your conscience to the point that you will stand even when others won't. You'll stand alone if necessary. I've talked about this before, but I, I just, I just want to, again, gently push this idea for your consideration. 
the choice comes to every one of us. Whether in adulthood, whether in childhood, every one of us faces a time where we must choose. We have to decide, will I go along to avoid criticism? Will I go along to get gain? Will I go along with something that in my heart I know is wrong just because everybody else is doing it and it really seems safer to just kind of move along with the herd? Now, the sad truth is a lot of people will answer that question affirmatively. Well, you do what you have to do, and sometimes that means you got to hold your nose. And I know that sounds like I'm talking about elections, but I'm talking about something beyond just elections here. When you have to violate your principles, the foundational principles of what makes you a good person, what makes you a dependable person, a seeker of truth, you've lost something very precious. And and that's not to say that it's an irredeemable thing that you can't ever, you know, be made whole again. You can. But as anybody who's been through a 12-step program will tell you, the first step is admitting that there's a problem. The first step is admitting, okay, I'm off course here. Then comes the decision, what can I do about it? But every single one of us at some point in our lives, maybe at multiple points in our lives, is going to face this decision, that moment of truth where we have to decide, do I go along or do I stand up and say, I can't do this. This this isn't right. My conscience forbids me from participating in this. So this is where the value of knowing who you are and what you stand for is absolutely paramount. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's just a light and easy thing. You know, I just, well, I sat down this morning, I decided who I am, and I decided what I stand for, and <clears throat> everything else just, you know, fell into place. It's actually built over the course of uh, years and weeks and months of consistent effort to think about what matters to you. Think about what gives value to your life. This is, this is the reason why. When I look for information to better feed my understanding of the world around me, I don't look for political purity, and I don't even look for poli- you know, politically simpatico points of view. I'm looking for light, and the crazy thing is I find it in places I really wouldn't have expected. You've heard me talk about Caitlin Johnstone. She's a writer from down in Australia, uh, pretty left-wing from, from a lot of her writings that I've seen. She and I have very different worldviews, but she is a seeker and a speaker of truth like very few people that I've seen. And as a result, I have been able to learn from her, even if there are some areas where we probably won't ever line up. It doesn't matter. The things on which uh, I'm, I'm learning and the things on which I agree are usually the things that, that really do tend to matter in the long run. So, I don't expect you to agree with me. Sometimes it's, in fact, good that you don't. I appreciate those people who push back and those people who hold my feet to the fire and make sure that I'm not misleading people. I don't want to mislead anybody. But I do want to give you enough content that causes you to stop, pause for a moment, and think about, where do I stand on this issue? What would I do in this situation? And if you're one of those people who says, I've got to be true to my conscience... I'm here to encourage you to be true. It's going to take courage to do so, but no, you're doing the right thing.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Hey, if you would like, it doesn't cost you a thing to subscribe, and I will send you in your email box, email inbox, that is, I will send you my show notes each day that I do a program. Yeah, they're not, uh, you know, this isn't exactly Pulitzer-winning stuff, but I uh, sit down every day, and uh, actually I spend the better part of my day just looking for good, thought-provoking, light-filled articles that uh, and and takes on on the passing scene that will either inform or inspire or sometimes cause you to chuckle and uh, I put them all together in my show notes maybe a few annotations a couple of thoughts of my own and I publish them and I can send it right to your email inbox just go to the com and subscribe by the way um just want to point this out lifesavingfood.com Still an excellent resource, even with some of the slowdowns in the supply chain, even with some of the rising prices on food, which, by the way, these are, these are good indicators that it's a really good idea to be thinking in terms of what do I have set aside for a rainy day, even in spite of those difficulties. Kendall is offering my listeners a 25% discount when they use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. Just H-Y-D-E. That's a pretty significant savings. It's very, very generous, and I uh, recommend it to you so you can uh, get yourself squared away and have the peace of mind of knowing you have food storage and emergency preparedness for whatever lies ahead, be it rough times or nothing but good times. So to further drive home the idea that all is not lost, I want you to check out uh, Chloe Anagnos' latest column on how the lockdowns may have been a disaster but they also may have rekindled Americans' entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, you think about it. Some of the greatest innovations that have come along were born out of necessity. As in, wow, things really suck. I guess we're going to have to do something about it. That's kind of what makes us uh, human beings. Actually, this this is kind of the ethos of America too, right? We're Americans. We're going to handle it. We will find a way. And typically we do. It just seems like the people who are actually interested in, you know, finding a way to be entrepreneurial and stand up and, and to forge solutions, um, that seems like a much smaller number than the people who are uh, choosing instead to sit on the curb and cry. Bring me milk and cookies. <laughs> My knee got skinned and I need help. Government, govern me harder, Daddy, please. Let's, uh, let's take a look at what Chloe Anagnos has to say. She says the pandemic and widespread imposition of lockdowns that forced thousands of businesses to shut their doors in 2020 had a serious impact on unemployment rates in America. And to those who found themselves out of a job, looking for alternative ways to make money became a priority. While many turned to social media, especially TikTok, to share their talents in hopes of gaining some financial backing, others chose to become entrepreneurs. And now they are reaping the benefits. But she asks, what drove so many Americans to entrepreneurship during hard times? Was it perhaps the encouragement triggered by the increased unemployment benefits? Or are Americans more prone to embracing the risk of launching new business ventures in uncertain times? Chloe Anagnos writes, early in the pandemic, 
states noticed a surge in business licenses, as the National Bureau of Economic Research study found. As a matter of fact, about 4.3 new business, 4.3 million new business applications were filed in 2020 alone. That's more than a million more in 2019. The idea that the pandemic has kind of restarted America's startup engine is a real thing, according to MIT economist Scott Stern, one of the authors of the NBER paper. Sometimes you need to turn off the car in order to turn it back on. Now, Chloe Anagno says some may argue that stimulus checks were giving many of the unemployed some sense of security that helped them to feel confident enough to start their own ventures. But she says it's just as likely, if not more so, that Americans who found themselves out of a job were simply not content with sitting at home waiting for their government check to arrive. That was the case with Andre Smith, a 26-year-old Long Island resident who started his own loungewear clothing brand, LoungeFit. Since its launch in August of 2020, Smith has made $35,000 in sales. Now, with his online presence growing and his how-to videos on launching a clothing brand becoming wildly popular, he believes his work has just begun. He told NBC News, honestly, it's been an absolute roller coaster ride, but I wouldn't change it for anything. Because to come from where I came from and to build something like this is a dream for a lot of people. Now, currently, there are many similar stories being covered in the news showing that the American dream is far from dead. Indeed, she says entrepreneurship during hard times is nothing new. Companies like CNN, Burger King, General Motors, even gig economy big players like Airbnb, Lyft, and Uber all started during challenging economic times. During the Panic of 1907, William C. Durant saw an opportunity to improve the automobile market by launching General Motors. As a holding company, it broke paradigms by embracing a series of independent automobile lines bound under the same Mater brand. 1953, Burger King opened its doors as Insta Burger King, when once again America found itself in a recession. Inspired by the McDonald brothers, Keith J. Kramer and his wife's uncle, Matthew Burns, purchased the rights to two pieces of equipment called Insta Machines, launching their new venture by marketing it as a completely new way to cook burgers. Needless to say, it worked. Fast forward to 1980, when price inflation in the U.S. was through the roof. Ted Turner and 300 other original employees invested millions into the cable news network, CNN, creating the first channel ever to provide 24-hour television news coverage. And finally, during the 2007-2009 financial crisis, Uber, Airbnb, and Lyft all started providing millions of under- and unemployed people with opportunities to use their own property to make ends meet. The business model became a trend, and soon enough, hundreds of similar employees, hundreds of similar companies, rather, started to provide millions of informal workers platforms in a variety of niches from food delivery to education. As she points out in 2020, America saw entrepreneurs opening businesses more than twice as much as they did prior to the pandemic. And while government support programs may have certainly provided some with financial stability as they planned their next steps, the remote technology available in 2020 gave the American entrepreneurial spirit the necessary tools to take off. It also gave women, and especially women of color, the chance to let their creativity run wild. According to Luke Perdue, 
Pardue, rather, an economist at payroll and benefits provider Gusto, 11% of new business owners in 2020 were black or African-American. In pre-pandemic times, the same demographic accounted for just 3% of all new business creation. Furthermore, 49%, or nearly half of them, were women. That's a 22% increase from previous years. So to Pardue, the research shows that many entrepreneurs start their own business out of economic necessity, which could explain the demographic change among entrepreneurs in the age of COVID. Pardue explained, women and people of color were those who bore the brunt of the recession last year. They were resilient and turned obstacles into opportunities. Now, Chloe Adagnos says, the government's failures regarding their approach to COVID containment may have caused great suffering, but it didn't kill the spirit of innovation that still makes America so special. Thanks to this entrepreneurial passion, we will continue to see great new ventures coming out of America come rain or shine. I think I can attest to this. This is true. Necessity forces us to take the step that, uh, man, I've been scared to take this, but here we go. Been there myself. And if you haven't considered doing something, even if it's on a very small scale, to create a little mini factory at home, is there some little niche that you can work within to create value for others? Maybe now's the time to do so. I mean, I know there's going to be a certain segment of the population that's content to sit back and and wring their hands and wait for a check with their name on it to arrive from government. I'm guessing you're probably not one of those people, though. So use your imagination. Talk with like-minded friends. You might just be surprised at some of the different creative ways you can come up with to create that value and to launch your own business. I with with the mandates and especially you know what was it the the fifth district uh, court of appeals was that it anyway there was a court that struck down the the Biden mandates at least put it put a stay on it for now saying hold on we have some grave constitutional concerns what does the Biden administration do they direct businesses go ahead and implement them anyway while we get this sorted out that my friend is some pretty serious banana republic stuff going on right under our noses. Maybe now is a good time to start developing the ability to be self-employed with multiple sources of income. Because I'm thinking this may be where safety is found. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists because there is a battle taking place for your mind. And I'm not the person who's looking to plant the flag and claim it in the name of the queen. Yes, we are going to claim your mind. I'm encouraging you to claim your mind as your own, to claim your worldview as your own. And that means you should probably not even take what I say as, uh, you know, well, I can hang my hat on that. 
Question everything. Question the narratives. Push back against those who tell you this is the way it's got to be, and you have no choice but to believe this. In fact, don't even look over there. Don't even think about something that uh, doesn't fit what I'm telling you. You know, truth be told, you can recognize there's a lot of that going on these days. I'm here to share information with you that I think is good, principled, factual information. I can't guarantee it's 100% accurate, but I do my best not to, you know, feed you, um, you know, bad information or to run with rumors or sensationalize things in the hopes that, you know, we'll create some buzz. I'm just giving you the best information that I can find and what you do with it. That is entirely up to you. I will still love you and I will still respect you, even if you entirely disagree with the conclusions that, that I happen to come to. By the way, great sponsors make this program possible. I would love it if you would show some love to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingQuiltingCenter.com, that's also located in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com, as well as SolarPatriots.com. I put nice handy links to every one of them in my show notes, which you can find out at my website, thebrianhideshow.com. So as, as alarming as it's been to watch all the various lockdown and crisis stuff that's taken place in the last 20 months, the recent COP26 meeting in Scotland set off a few more alarm bells for me. Now, I'm very, very fortunate. As part of, uh, part of my work, I also produce audio and podcasts for other people. And I love it because um, in in my journey, I have uh, come in contact with a group called Young Voices. This was originally based out of the Washington, D.C. area. They actually have a chapter over in the U.K. So each week, I get the chance to, to visit with various contributors to the Young Voices organization. And these are very, very bright writers and commentators who are just at the beginning of their media careers. And, and these are liberty-minded people, very principled, very, very intelligent. Had a chance to talk with one of them yesterday. Um, his name is Connor Tomlinson. And I'm going to make a bold prediction here. I think Connor is, Connor is a guy who is, is destined for stardom. And I don't mean in a superficial sense. I mean, this guy is a solid thinker. He's funny. He's very personable. The camera favors him. But he also has a great mind, and he reported on what he calls eco-authoritarianism from COP26, which was the big climate change meeting that took place in Glasgow, Scotland. Yes, this is the one where world leaders convened on Scotland because we are so concerned about, you know, reducing people's carbon footprints that uh, why Joe Biden showed up with an 85-car caravan and entourage to be a part of this. And then he ended up sleeping through, you know, at least a portion of it. My goodness. It, you know, they, they, they flew there on hundreds and hundreds of jets and they brought thousands of support staff. And yes, they're very serious about burning all of those fossil fuels and adding all that air pollution to warn us about the danger of why we need lower climate emissions. You backyard barbecuers. Anyway. I want to share some thoughts with you from uh, Connor Tomlinson and his article, which was published in the Spectator, spectator.org. Will more eco-authoritarianism come from COP26? Connor writes, Our international political class is set to descend on Glasgow this November for the United Nations Climate Change Summit. Now, I believe this summit is over, but uh, this, was, this was written, this was actually published 
uh, back in in, uh, late October. He says, a swarm seems to be an apt comparison given that 1,500 waste disposal staff are set to strike for the duration of the event, leaving the unnecessary trash produced by the environmental devotees flowing out of bags and bins for all to see. And like flies, he says, the bad ideas proposed to revolutionize everyone's lives for the worst are bound to be in abundance. Tomlinson says speculation is circulating as to what bright ideas world leaders will have for how to seize and spend everyone else's money. Concern has been rightly expressed over plans to reappropriate lockdown policies to lower climate emissions. That's a very valid concern, by the way. Well, it worked so well, why don't we apply it to the climate? Now we're not just fighting COVID, we're fighting climate change. I mean, they've been twisting our arm on this for years, but now we've got something that we can actually use to force people to do what we want. Hooray! Connor Tomlinson says... The placement of this year's conference in Glasgow is unfortunate for anyone hoping the authoritarian tendencies of the international political class were on the wane. Britain's besiegement by eco-socialists for the last five years may sway world leaders in attendance at, at COP to, toward more authoritarian measures. Like America's Sunrise Movement, which staged riots at the White House, the UK's homegrown extremist Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain have blockaded bridges and roads, causing four-car collisions and permanent paralysis of ambulance occupants. He says, in debates with Extinction Rebellion activists, I fought firsthand their endorsement of using lockdowns to reduce carbon emissions. Their callous indifference to the lives and livelihoods ended by the British state by its decision to impose the sixth strictest lockdowns for 18 months is a disturbing barometer of the totalitarianism guiding our political paradigm. He says another concerning carryover from the pandemic life could be the digital surveillance system numerous states have subjected their citizens to. The UK is poised to copy the EU, Australia, and Canada by instituting vaccine passports via the NHS app, which has been vulnerable to data breaches, as well as collecting information like sexual habits and political affiliation from its users. A carbon social credit system could spawn from this digital infrastructure. Smart homes for lighting and heating, cashless contactless transaction records, and AI incorporative transport could all provide data on the carbon emissions caused by the behavior of each individual. The UK government is setting targets for energy suppliers to install these across Britain's homes. And if used as a predicate for legislation, this digitized data collection network could cause calls for energy rations when renewables dip below expected generation rates, such as when Texas saw turbines freeze back in February. Now, Connor Tomlinson says the UK's transport secretary has proposed a law allowing the government to interfere with the grid and limit car household or household car charger output during peak hours. That's effectively a travel lockdown, with the state leaving your electric car empty if and when it pleases. MasterCard is also partnering with the World Economic Forum to cap its users' purchases according to carbon emissions. Citizens could have their emissions compared to global carbon credit markets and, in a Black Mirror-esque move, be banned from public transport, electricity use, or purchasing necessary goods should they exceed their personal emissions limits. But he says COP26 remains as futile as it is fascistic, so long as the model for technocratic totalitarianism, China vacates its seat at the table. 
As President Donald Trump once pointed out, membership of the Paris Accords has not kept Beijing on the straight and narrow to reducing carbon emissions. And he says, as the summit approached, China is increasing coal production across 251 mines, leading to a, leading to a, 16, a projected 16% increase in global emissions. Now, Connor Tomlinson says the Public Accounts Committee will be auditing Prime Minister Boris Johnson's plans for reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050, neutralizing only 1% of global emissions in excess of a one trillion pound cost. With a renewables grid projected to cost £2.9 trillion to meet only 27% of consumer energy needs, these measures will incur new taxes, a 50% rise in heating bills. Haven't we been warned about that here in America as well? And a £15,000 in home improvement costs for each family. He was explaining this to me yesterday. A lot of the, the homes in, in Great Britain are, are heated with, with boilers. And if you put a heat pump in there, which, you know, I don't know if you've ever had to work with a heat pump. My, my poor mom has one of these, and it just, they just suck. <laughs> they're, they're just not great, depending on the climate that you're in. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's about a, it's, it's a very costly expense to, to replace. And for those across the pond stunned by Biden's trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, Connor says, imagine the cost of net zero in Britain proportionate to America's five-fold higher population. And try not to weep. So, we'll come back to finish off uh, Connor Tomlinson's article. And I want to also provide some perspective uh, from Pat Buchanan on this COP26 climate conference that just took place. Look, the central planners are still doing exactly what they love to do, and that's centrally plan. Whether that's good for you or bad, well, that's not for you to say. After all, we know best, or so they tell us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I was just sharing an article from my friend Connor Tomlinson, who is a contributor for the uh, Young Voices UK chapter as well as, uh, I believe he's a member of the British Conservation Association. I'm sorry, Connor, I, I just totally botched. Uh, but he's part of a conservation group in Britain, so don't, don't think, yeah, this is a guy out there burning tires on Earth Day. No, he's, he's quite, uh, quite eco-conscious, but also very freedom-conscious and free market-conscious, which is why he's calling out things like the COP26 uh, climate conference that just took place in which so many people showed up, you know, just flooding Scotland with all of these jets and cars. I mean, come on, if they were really serious about climate change and about saving the planet, I mean, come on, why wouldn't they they take sailboats? Why wouldn't they take rail or, you know, some, some kind of mass transit? Anyway, back to Connor's article. He says, the onus is on the Anglosphere to circumvent Chinese influence. By developing profitable technologies and exporting them to other countries presently dependent on China's Belt and Road Initiative to upgrade their infrastructure. Pacts like uh, AUKUS, AUKUS, are a solid start for strengthening military deterrence, but he says our economic prowess remains impaired by the likes of the protectionist clauses in the CPTPP and the suicidal costs of climate policies. Energy independence from the likes of Russian gas and Chinese batteries 
are desirable goals, but he says that should be done by leveraging market competition through providing tax incentives for repatriating manufacturing and innovation. We shouldn't be pillaging our economies, and the leaps and bounds living standards have come while China threatens to undo such sacrifices in their quest for global dominance. So Connor Tomlinson says the leading lesson from lockdowns is that the free world should not be copying China's authoritarian model in fighting any climate crisis either. And climate crisis is in quotation marks. Allowing another evil empire to become the dominant cultural and economic superpower while the West races to a renewable bottom will not make a world worth saving beyond 2050. Now let's shift gears over to uh, Pat Buchanan. This was published recently, I think this was published yesterday on intellectualtakeout.org. Did Glasgow deliver blah, blah, blah? (laughs) Buchanan says at the end of the first week of the Glasgow Climate Summit, 100,000 protesters marched to denounce the attendees as phonies who will never honor their commitments to curb carbon emissions. Despite pledges by 100 nations to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030 and by 20 nations, including the U.S., to end financing of new international fossil fuel power plants, teenage climate superstar activist Greta Thunberg <clears throat> says, The COP26 summit rather is a con. Two weeks of business as usual, blah, blah, blah. She did not say, how dare you, but I'm going to throw it in there just for fun. Now he says Thunberg has a point. Commitments made in Scotland are not binding upon governments that, be they autocratic or democratic, do not subordinate their national interests to pledges ostensibly made in global forums. He says this Glasgow summit calls to mind the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which won a Nobel Peace Prize for Secretary of State Frank Kellogg. On August 28, 1920, August 27, 1928, rather, 15 high contracting parties signed on to renounce war as an instrument of national policy. The signatories that day were the United States, Britain, Germany, Italy, Japan, France, Poland, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, and India. Now, within 15 years, all 15 nations... Ireland alone accepted, were ensnared in the greatest war in history. So like the pledges at the climate summit, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, Pact rather, provided no, for no means of enforcement or sanctions against nations that failed to live up to their commitment. He says, consider, China is the world's largest emitter of, chi- of carbon emissions. Russia, the fourth largest, and Brazil, the seventh largest worldwide. Yet President Xi Jinping of China, President Vladimir Putin of Russia, and President Jair uh, Bolsonaro of, of Brazil did not show up at the summit. And President Joe Biden of the United States and Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Great Britain both fell asleep during the proceedings. So Pat Buchanan says Glasgow is destined to fail because national interests invariably triumph over globalism. The demands of the people who keep regimes in power will be heard and heeded before the claims of the transnationals. Biden, faced with a threat by Senator Joe Manchin to sink his Build Back Better bill, summarily dropped a measure that would have imposed rising carbon taxes on fossil fuel plants and provided monetary rewards for clean energy facilities. Biden dropped it because his own and his party's fortunes depend on enacting the legislation. 
Now, Buchanan says the protests in Scotland this weekend were far more colorful than the year-long yellow vest protests in France. Yet the French protests proved more effective and successful. That movement originated with French motorists from rural areas who had long commutes and were protesting an increase in fuel taxes that was real and immediate. Now, the French protests had a specific goal, and they succeeded in bringing about a reduction in the fuel taxes. King coal is dead, we heard from the summit. Really? Buchanan says coal is a foundational resource in Asia, and the demand for coal grows as populations and economies of Asia expand. Coal accounts for 60 to 65% of the electricity generation in China and 68 to 73% in India. Two nations that represent more than a third of the world's population. Nations such as Australia depend upon the sale and shipment of coal as essential components of their exports. And consider Scotland itself. Should it move to secede from Britain? Will it gladly forfeit the North Sea oil and gas deposits that have proven so beneficial to Britain? As America transitions to clean energy and electric vehicles, our own reliance upon China will grow. For China today is the world's principal supplier of solar panels and the rare earth minerals vital to the batteries of electric cars. Now to get to Glasgow, delegates, journalists and activists had to travel by commercial or private jet and every restaurant, bar, hotel room and conference hall had to be lighted and heated by electricity generated by the kind of gas, oil and coal-fired plants that the global elites want on the chopping block by mid-century. So the carbon footprint of the Glasgow summit was not inconsiderable, says Pat Buchanan. Now that the presidents and prime ministers have departed the global summit in its second and final week, we're going to get down to the lick log. Writes the Washington Post, in coming days, negotiators from nearly 200 countries will haggle, haggle over every word and every line of an agreement that could shape how the rich countries of the world <clears throat> deliver on promises to help more vulnerable nations. Specifically, who will pony up the $100 billion per year promised to poor and developing nations at previous climate summits, yet never fully delivered? And who will pay the reparations for the loss and damage suffered by the poor and developing countries previously caused by the industrialized nations of the world? Buchanan says, at root, almost every globalist and transnational institution and summit has a common feature. That is the endless transfer of wealth from the first world, the historic oppressors, to their alleged third world victims. These gatherings are to determine how much in reparations the latter can extort from a conscience-stricken West. And he asks, will the GOP reject the shakedown? So, two great articles, you'll find them both in the show notes, one from Connor Tomlinson, one from Pat Buchanan. We've got to take a quick break. As we go to break, let me remind you that our show is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Her phone number is 435-703-4522. If you need a home loan, and if you're shopping for a home in Utah, trust me, you, uh, you need something quick. Trust the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, an equal housing opportunity lender, to get you the funding you need and to get it quickly. We'll be back in just a few moments. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, welcome back to the show. You know, the desire to stand for something, particularly for things like freedom, freedom of conscience, personal liberty, freedom of association, etc. I know it's easy for some people to dismiss as, well, you're just going through your Ayn Rand phase, you know, like, like it's some kind of a political itch that, uh, that you just want to scratch, right? Isn't it easy to just, well, you know, I was a fanatic once about this kind of stuff, but now <laughs> I prefer to tell people what to do. Okay, maybe that's not how everybody thinks of it, but for for a lot of us, there is a very distinct call that we feel to resist the tyrannical spell that has been cast over the world. And I understand that's a source of frustration to those who think that, uh, well, this is much ado about nothing, or it's just, this is wild conspiracy theories, or this is some kind of a political hobby that, you know, perhaps I'm just using to get attention. I can assure you, it is uh, it is much more than that. This is something that that uh, I think informs actually every decision and every every aspiration that I have in my life. And if that sounds just sad and pathetic, well, you know, I'm not telling you that that's what you ought to do with yours, but I'm going to say I feel a very distinct call to, to be the person that I was created to be. And I know other people who have, have tapped into this in their own lives. Not all of them, by the way, are, you know, doing what I'm doing. The point is it's a very personal thing, but if you have ever felt that hint of there is something greater that I was born to do, that's not a delusion of grandeur. That is a call from the universe. That is a call from your creator to recognize something that is uniquely yours and to rise to that occasion. Now, one of the most impressive calls and one of the most impressive uh, calls to answer that call to to stand up and resist the tyranny that is descending over us comes from Anna, I'm sorry, Margaret Anna Alice. Three first names there. Margaret Anna Alice in her letter to a colluder, Stop Enabling Tyranny. The subtitle here is Stand Down So You Can Stand Up. And in looking at this, the, the resources that she has compiled, I'm just going to share a few excerpts, but man, she's got some great stuff here. She starts with an excerpt from Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. This is is one of the books I recommend to everybody who I can because when they read it, without fail, every person I've recommended this book to has said to me, holy crap, that book sounds like it's describing us because Milton Meyer sat down and talked with average Germans who lived through those years, 1933 to 1945, and he got their attitudes on how did it come about? How did an entire society of very first-world, well-educated citizens step into the abyss, as they did in Germany? This excerpt says, A few hundred at the top to plan and direct at every level. A few thousand to supervise and control without a voice in policy at every level. A few score thousand specialists, teachers, lawyers, journalists, scientists, artists, actors, athletes, and social workers eager to serve or at least unwilling to pass up a job or to revolt. 
a million of the pobl, which sounds like people and means riffraff, to do what we would call the dirty work, ranging from murder, torture, robbery, and arson, to the effort which probably employed more Germans in inhumanity than any other in Nazi history. The standing of sentry in front of Jewish shops and offices in the boycott of April 1933. Now, Margaret Anna Alice says, I'm willing to die to defend my liberty. And she asks, are you willing to die to take my liberty? No? Good. Then stop enforcing totalitarian measures against your neighbors on behalf of the tyrants who wouldn't hesitate to annihilate you. Stop planning, directing, supervising, controlling, and performing their dirty work. Become part of the resistance instead of an enabler of democidal despots. Now here's who she's speaking to. She says whether you are a law enforcement officer, public health official, psychologist, scientist, medical professional, educator, employer, censor, propagandist, or any other agent of complicity in this war against the people, you are what makes dictatorships possible. You are what makes enslavement possible. You are what makes genocide possible. You are what makes the biggest lie in history possible. Now, she says you may not be one of the Gestapo agents beating individuals entering a public space without their Vaxport. She links, by the way, to to each example of this. Wrenching children away from their Vax criminal parents. Pummeling anti-injection protesters. Stripping and needle-raping resistors reverting Australia to a penal colony, or restraining and forcibly injecting the elderly and mentally disabled, otherwise known as useless eaters, by your predecessors. She says you may not be one of the public health officials instituting ineffectual and deleterious mask guidelines and lockdowns based on fraudulent PCR tests, testing wastewater to justify the iron-fisted measures, or falsifying the numbers to magnify a fabricated threat and conceal the deadly factual consequences and statistically astronomical number of adverse reactions to the injection. You may not be one of the psychologists devising the mass persuasion campaign that hypnotized the obedient, the gullible, and the ignorant around the globe. You may not be one of the scientists too frightened of losing your career, credibility, grant funding, and future to denounce the fraud being perpetrated under the cloak of science. I love the little trademark next to science. (laughs) That's almost become an inside joke now. She says, you may not be one of the physicians violating the Hippocratic Oath and Nuremberg Code as you deny potentially life-saving medications, deploy murderous injections, administer lethal drugs such as remdesivir, inflict ventilator-associated lung injuries, apply high-risk interventions like intubation, gang-inject patients, coerce pregnant mothers into risking miscarriage, refuse to treat non-GMO humans, and contemplate prioritizing ICU beds for the injected. Again, links to every single one of the examples she's citing here. You You may not be one of the nurses flouting the nursing code of ethics while pinning down screaming children as you plunge in the poison death jab. You may not be one of the daycare employees torturing toddlers into wearing a mask. You may not be one of the fascist organized institutions complying with the merciless edicts to fire the rational dissidents in your organization. You may not be one of the censors suppressing evidence of all of the above atrocities 
while simultaneously silencing and smearing the honorable scientists, medical experts, whistleblowers, and other truth-tellers valiant enough to refute the preposterous narrative you've swindled so many into believing. You may not be one of the propagandists blurring the biggest lie talking points over the loudspeakers through every conceivable mechanism, 24-7, 365, until the feeble-minded succumb to your relentless coercion from exhaustion, peer pressure, menticide, and Orwellian doublethink. She says you don't have to be any of those abominable scoundrels to be an enabler of tyranny. You simply need to hold your tongue. You simply need to look the other way. You simply need to turn a deaf ear. You simply need to stifle your gut feeling that something is profoundly, irrevocably wrong about every venomous lie, absurd policy, and malignant mandate that has bombarded the public since spring 2020. You simply need to live in fear. You simply need to cling to your ignorance. You simply need to follow the leader. You simply need to surrender to your cowardice. And she presents a few video clips here that are well worth your time. She says, see if you recognize your present or potential future self in any of the following scenes from these dystopian phantasmagorias of our own world is is increasingly coming to resemble. I love that one of the first clips that she uses is from THX 1138. I believe that was George Lucas's first film. And uh, it was, it was, uh, I think this was produced in 1971, starring Robert Duvall. I remember seeing this as a teenager and thinking, holy crap, that's a disturbing film. Extremely dystopian. She's got a great clip from uh, Brazil, which if you haven't seen it, is a wonderful parody about paper-pushing bureaucracy. She has a clip from Fahrenheit 451, where the old lady prefers to die rather than leave her books. A clip from A a Clockwork Orange, where the droogs take Alex for a walk. It's worth looking at these clips, if for no other reason, just to see that uh, sometimes life imitates art. And the dystopian elements that that are presented... In these clips, very strongly punctuate what uh, what she's pointing out here. Margaret Anna Alice. We'll come back to her article in a few moments, but to this uh, letter to a colluder, stop enabling. You don't have to be in an official position to be a colluder or to be an enabler to the tyranny that's settling over us right now. you got to be able to recognize it for what it is, and you've got to be strong enough to say no. I won't be a part of it. We'll come back to this, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. In today's show notes, you will find a link to this wonderful article by Margaret Anna Alice. This is on her Substack account. Letter to a colluder. Stop enabling the tyranny. And this is one of the strongest call-outs that I've seen, but it's also very, very well documented in the sense that she's not just ranting here. She provides you with links to each of the examples of abuse and legit tyranny that she's referring to. And this is a call to 
anybody who needs to hear the message that you have to stop looking away. You have to stop turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to these things and pretending that, well, as long as it's happening to somebody else, it really doesn't affect me. She says every act of collusion, every stain on your conscience, every bureaucratic compromise of your values etches an ineradicable scar into your soul. Now, as a uh, philologist colleague of Milton Myers explains, and they thought they were free, the Germans, 1933 to 45, this person explained one day too late your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy, and some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were born in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility, even to God. The system itself could not have intended this way, could not have intended this in the beginning, but in order to sustain itself, it was compelled to go all the way. You have gone almost all the way yourself. Life is a continuing process, a flow. Not a succession of acts and events at all. It has flowed to a new level, carrying you with it without any effort on your part. On this new level, you live. You have been living more comfortably every day with new morals, new principles. You've accepted things you would not have accepted five years ago, a year ago. Things that your father, even in Germany, could not have imagined. Suddenly it all comes down, all at once. You see what you are what you have done, or more accurately, what you haven't done, for that was all that was required of most of us, that we do nothing. You remember those early meetings of your department in the university when if one had stood, others would have stood, perhaps. But no one stood. A small matter. A matter of hiring this man or that, and you hired this one rather than that. You remember everything now, and your heart breaks. Too late. You are compromised beyond repair. It's one of the most powerful passages from the book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 45. Now, Margaret Anna Alice also goes on to point out how in Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland, Christopher Browning ponders why only 12 men out of a battalion of nearly 500 kindled the courage to decline participation in the Josephal massacre of Polish Jews when Major Wilhelm Trapp, who himself wept bitterly at the command but ultimately complied, saying, but orders are orders, offered to excuse anyone who asked. Browning lists such factors as the pressure for conformity, Himmler's exalting obedience as one of the key virtues of all SS men, wartime brutalization, racism, segmentation, and routinization of the task, special selection of the perpetrators, careerism, obedience to orders, deference to authority, ideological indoctrination, and fear of isolation, rejection, and ostracism. 
thanks to the growing callousness that comes from habituation, the soldiers discovered that killing was something that someone could get used to. In fact, Browning found uh, Zygmunt Bauman's explanation particularly compelling, noting, for Bauman, cruelty is social in its origin, much more than it is characterological. Bauman argues that most people slip into the roles society provides them. And he's very critical of any implication that faulty personalities are the cause of human cruelty. What set these 12 brave men apart? Well, Browning summarizes Bauman's observation. The exception, the real sleeper, is the rare individual who has the capacity to resist authority and assert moral autonomy, but who is seldom aware of this hidden strength until put to the test. Now, i got to pause here for a moment. Many of us are being put to that test today. No, it's not about whether will you put the Jews on the boxcars and send them off to the death camps. It's something much more subtle, but it's just as real a test of that capacity to resist authority and to assert your moral autonomy. And I'm not trying to downplay or you know badmouth the people who have, have failed that particular test. We all fail tests at one time or another. But it's that awareness that makes it possible for us to stand up as we should. Browning goes on to, uh, to cite the conclusion that Philip Zimbardo drew from his notorious Stanford prison experiment. The most dramatic, and, most dramatic and distressing to us was the observation of the ease with which sadistic behavior could be elicited, elicited in individuals who were not sadistic types. The prison situation alone, Zimbardo concluded, was a sufficient condition to produce aberrant antisocial behavior. There's a great link to a video that helps further explain that. He then recaps the findings of another famous experiment, Obedience to Authority, conducted by Stanley Milgram. Now, Milgram added a number of factors to account for such an unexpectedly high degree of potentially murderous obedience to a non-coercive authority. Things like socialization through family, school, and military service, as well as a whole array of rewards and punishments within society generally, reinforces and internalizes a tendency toward obedience. A seemingly voluntary entry into an authority system perceived as legitimate creates a strong sense of obligation. Those within the hierarchy adopt the authority's perspective or definition of the situation, in this case, as an important scientific experiment rather than the infliction of physical torture. The notions of loyalty, duty, discipline, requiring competent performance in the eyes of authority, become moral imperatives overriding any identification with the victim. Normal individuals enter what's called an agentic state in which they are the instrument of another's will. In such a state, they no longer feel personally responsible for the content of their actions, but only for how well they perform. Once entangled, people encounter a series of binding factors or cementing mechanisms that make disobedience or refusal even more difficult. The momentum of the process discourages any new or contrary initiative. The situational obligation or etiquette makes refusal appear improper, rude, or even an immoral breach of obligation. And a socialized anxiety over potential punishment for disobedience acts as a further deterrent. Now, Browning doesn't just focus on the ones who pulled the triggers. He also addresses the desk murderers, 
for whom homicidal acts were almost mundane thanks to the, to the desensitizing effects of the division of labor. It's a very interesting quote. I don't think we're going to have time to go through all of them, but the bottom line is socialists and bureaucrats weren't the only ones responsible for executing enemies of the Third Reich. Medical personnel were also enlisted. And again, she has a great video clip uh, talking about this, the killing nurses of the Third Reich, and points out that few of the individuals who slaughtered slaughtered their fellow human beings were psychopaths initially. That's the scary part. They were average folks just like you and me. They were simply doing their jobs, which required increasing levels of savagery over time. That's the process by which well-meaning individuals metamorphose into barbarous sociopaths. And she says, the only way to keep yourself from transmogrifying into a monstrous sadist is to alchemize your cowardice into courage now. You have the power to fell the Goliaths. You have the power to expose the corrupt. You have the power to subvert the technocrats. You have the power to uncloak the transhumanists. You have the power to bring justice to the self-instilled oppressors, demolishing and reconstructing the world in their own malevolent image. You have the power not to follow orders. And that's the note I'm going to end on here. I know it sounds like so much nasal gazing. Nasal gazing. Nasal. Try that again. Naval gazing to some people. I'm just going to look at my belly button and contemplate the world as it is and what I could do. If you're not acquainted with your conscience, if you haven't sat down and really outlined what you stand for and why, maybe it's a good time to do that. And then when push comes to shove, you'll know which lines you can safely cross as well as which ones you cannot. This is The Brian Hyde Show.